This morning we're reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning verse 1, chapter 6. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the Word of God for the people of God. So, by many scholars, this letter to the Romans is considered to be Paul's greatest work. Paul's written a number of letters that we have in our Christian scriptures. Paul, you know, was a traveling evangelist, a church planter, if you will. After his conversion, he spent most of his life traveling around the Mediterranean, organizing people, calling people to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Most of the letters he wrote were to places where he had started the church. Romans is different than that. He did not organize this group. He did not start a church at Rome. On this occasion, he's riding ahead to tell them that he's coming and to introduce himself in a sense and his understanding of what God is doing in Jesus Christ for the whole world. And what Paul says to them is that what God is doing is saving us. He declares that we are saved by grace by the grace of God coming upon us. He's made a shift in his life by believing if he could only follow the Jewish law codes perfectly, he would be in right relationship with God. But now, he says, he has a different understanding of what God has done for us in Christ, and what he has done is offer us salvation. He has saved us by grace. Where we began to read this morning, Paul is getting ready to anticipate their question because he's gone as far as to say this, God's love for us grows in a way that outdistances our sin or overcomes our sin. So he's anticipating a follow-up questions from those who are reading the letter. So if God's grace is all that great, then why does our behavior matter at all? Why do Christians have any moral codes if we can do whatever we want and God will still save us by grace, why can't we do anything at all and still be in right relationship with God? This is how Paul said it in those first couple of verses. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? 
Paul's answer is the beginning of verse 2, by no means. That's not the way it works. If that's the way you think it works, you've misunderstood what this is all about. And he begins to describe to them baptism and what happens in baptism. He says, don't you understand that when you are baptized, you are dead to sin at that point, just as Christ died to destroy sin. And when you are raised up out of the water, you raise up, you're raised up to new life. That becoming a follower of Christ changes your life. Baptism symbolizes that. It helps us recognize that God's love has broken the power of sin and given us new opportunity to choose life, life with God. The purpose of the good news is to lead into a new life, an abundant life. A life where we know that we are receiving and have received the love of God. And it so fills us that we're ready to share it with others and be a witness to the gospel by the way that we live. Have you heard the story about the fellow who was a painter? He was having trouble making ends meet. He decided maybe he could thin the pain a little bit, stretch it a little further, and no one would notice and he would make more money. So he tried it on one house, and no one seemed to notice. So on the next house, he thinned the paint a little bit more, and no one seemed to notice. And again and again, and all of a sudden, his profits were going way up. He began to get quite a good reputation. Because of that, he was able to get a contract for this little Methodist church in a small town. He was to paint it white. He thought, you know what, if people aren't noticing when I paint their house, surely they're not going to notice on their church. I'll thin this paint a little more and make a killing. All was going well. He was painting. It was looking fresh. He thought, this is going to be great. And just then he heard a rumble, a little thunder coming, clouds rolling in. He thought, oh my, I've got to finish this before the rain comes. And he's painting faster and faster and faster, but he's not fast enough. And all of a sudden, the heavens open and the rain is coming down. And you guessed it. The paint is so thin that it begins to run off the boards of the church. He can see that he's going to be disgraced. He's going to be found out. He's going to be humiliated. He's sitting at the church, so he drops to his knees and begins to pray, even though this wasn't his regular practice. Oh, God, I know I've made a mistake. I know I'm going to lose my reputation and my business unless you show me the way. Oh, Lord, help me. And maybe because he was at the church, he actually heard the voice of God. He heard it say, repaint, repaint, and thin no more. <laughs> repent, repent, and sin no more. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he wants these early Christians to know, that God gives us a new opportunity. Now, when we're thinking about repentance, it's important to remember that repent doesn't mean to simply say that you are sorry and then go on living the same way. Rather, it means to have a change of mind evidenced by a change of direction in your living. Rather than living toward sin and looking toward sin, you're living toward God and living toward God. You're moving away from sin and you're moving toward God. You're thinking more about God than you're thinking about sin. It's a change of life and a change in the way that you're living. 
Paul describes it for us in the middle of what we read today. I'm going to read to you a couple of those verses beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. And then in verse 10, Paul writes, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Do you see the difference? Can you hear the good news in that? That God comes to us even as sinners and offers love and grace, mercy and forgiveness. And empowers us to live a new life toward God. To live an abundant life as God intends. To live a life filled with love. Ready to share and witness to that love. So that others too might come to know of this great salvation of God. I read a book years ago. It was when I was in seminary. One of my favorite books out of seminary. I put the name of it in your outline. The Spirit and the Forms of Love. This whole book, some 300 pages of it, traced the history of God's work in the world. Not only through scriptures, but up to date, chapter after chapter, looking at different aspects of our living and how God's love can redeem everything in which we are involved. And of course, what the author is pointing out is not only that God's spirit is at work, but that it doesn't always look the same. He says it's the same spirit, but different forms of God's love coming into the world. So as he looks at the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, he says same God that's working in Jesus later in the Christian Scriptures. Different forms, but same God, same spirit. This author suggested that the reason God does that is to help us see the quality and the depth and the breadth of God's vast love for the world and for us as individuals in it. Same spirit, different forms. If you think about it, if we took the time this morning to each tell our faith story, we would hear lots of different stories. They would not all be the same. Right? Some of us would say, oh, I was born into Boston Avenue. I grew up here. I was baptized at this altar, confirmed, married. I've lived my whole life in this community of faith. Others of us would say, this is the first time I've been here, but I felt God drawing me here. Some of us could tell how we were born and raised in the faith, and we can't remember a time that we were not a part of the church. Others would say, oh, I was born and raised in the faith, but Somewhere along the way, I kind of began to explore and go in other directions. I've checked out some different avenues and other pathways, but now God's drawn me back here. Some would say, you know, where I grew up, nobody really talked about faith. We didn't go to church. Christianity wasn't important in my life. But then through a series of circumstances, through meeting some different people, now I feel drawn to God and I want to be in church. Right? I mean, lots of different stories in terms of how we have gotten here. But at our best, we would all be able to recognize this is God's love at work in each and every individual life. 
Same spirit, different form. Paul is saying this love of God is available and at work in your life in a particular way to help redeem you so that you might recognize that this love of God is for you. And when you recognize it, you'll have that experience of salvation or the sense of being made whole. You will know your sin forgiven and your life is offered to you anew, a new opportunity to go forth and be whom God has created you to be. The test of faith is not, does your story match mine? But can you recognize the same spirit of love The spirit that we point to is God, creator of the universe. The God Jesus called Father. The God that we proclaim is alive and at work even now in our very midst. We remind you that God is at work throughout our lives. And the journey of faith isn't a one-time thing, but is an everyday thing for the rest of your life. But that makes it a long journey And most of us who have been on the journey for a while could testify that it's easy to get distracted, easy to misstep, easy to stumble and fall. But that that God Paul talks about is still there with us, helping us, lifting us up, helping us move forward. But on such a journey, it's helpful to have a compass. Just as on a physical journey, it helps to know what direction we should be heading Paul says there is such a compass. I've asked in the sermon title, so who needs a compass? I'm suggesting everybody. Everybody needs a faith compass to help us steer along the way because it's so easy to get lost and to take a misstep. If you were here last week, you remember we were reading from the Gospel of Luke. Luke was telling us that story of those two disciples after the resurrection who were kind of bewildered, a little bit lost, wondering what God was doing. They had heard that not only was Jesus crucified, but but somehow the body was gone, that maybe he'd been raised from the dead. We noticed that in that story, there were four different ways that people came to faith. Some of them had a special revelation, a direct revelation or insight from God. Others of them had no revelation like that. They only heard the testimony of other people, but that helped them connect with God through Christ. Others learned about it through the study of Scripture, from reading those stories, from hearing those stories interpreted by Jesus in this case or by others. And then we also talked about the last sentence of that story, which said that those two disciples recognized Christ in the breaking of the bread. And then we all had opportunity to come to the table where we had broken and blessed the bread and offered it to you with the juice as a symbol, as a sign, as an experience of God coming to us, even in our brokenness, to bring new life to any and all of us. The compass God provides for us is Christ, Paul says. That God is at work in Jesus Christ to reveal to us this mighty love that never stops, that never ends. We find story after story about in the pages of these scriptures. Jesus summarized it for us when he was talking about the first and great commandment. You might remember that story. He says the key is love God and love neighbor. Love God and 
love neighbor. It's a good compass as a way to follow Christ. But of course, if you have a compass, but then go on a hike and leave the compass on the side table, it's not very helpful, is it? You have to be using it. So I'm suggesting we use this great commandment as a compass for us. In the, tech, in the text it says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm suggesting it might become more valuable to us if we would personalize it and say, I, I've put that in your outline. I shall love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, all my strength. Right? So then it changes from somebody else saying, you should live like this, to I choose to live like this. I've experienced the love of God alive in my life, and I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to live like this. I want to love God with my whole self. And I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to share that love of God that I've come to know with somebody else. That's the life God intends for each and all of us. It's an abundant life. It's a trustworthy compass, I would suggest to you. It's the way of Christ. One day, Ryan walked in from first grade. He began to holler for his mother as soon as he came in the door. She wasn't sure what was going on. She came to find little Ryan and say, what is it? And he blurted out, I need $70. That's a lot of money for a first grader. What for, Ryan? He said, well, today we, we talked about in geography that there's people in Africa that don't have access to clean water. They don't have a sink and a bathtub and a drinking fountain like we do. And the teacher said if somebody had $70, they could drill a well and those children those people would have clean and fresh drinking water i want to drill a well his mother was a little bit stunned she wasn't sure what to say she began to think he doesn't really understand how this works even if i gave him the 70 dollars and he sent it he might never hear anything back from one of those relief agencies after Ryan's dad got home. She talked to him about it. They thought, well, we'll just not say anything, and maybe he'll forget. If he brings it up again, we'll tell him he can earn the $70 by doing extra work and chores around the house. And even if it never comes to fruition, they're thinking he'll never make it to $70. He'll learn the value of honest work and how you have to work to earn a living. But his mom was surprised that night as she was tucking him in for bed. They always said prayers. He started the same way as he always did. Oh, God, bless my mom and dad and my brothers. She said that's usually the end of the prayer, but not that night. He said, and oh, God, let there be clean water for all the people in Africa. So... Next day, Ryan's ready to do some work. Ask his mom, what can I do? She gives him some chores. He begins to work and work. Before long, he's earned a dollar, but not just a dollar, 10 and 20 and 50. And all of a sudden, he's earned $70. His parents decide they better help him go down to this relief agency. They ask the teacher, who were you talking about? And they go and find the office. Ryan takes in his $70 and says, I'm ready to drill a well. The workers were impressed with his generosity of spirit and his tenacity as a young person. 
They broke the news to him, $70 will buy a water pump, but it takes $2,000 to dig a well. Oh, his parents were crestfallen, thinking this was going to crush him. Not Ryan. He says, okay, I'll be back when I have the money. He was ready to go. He continued to work and do chores throughout the rest of the year on into the summer until he had raised $1,000. Newspapers heard about it. TV stations began to cover him. And then he heard that another organization made a matching grant to the relief agency that he had taken his money to, and they would match every dollar given. And all of a sudden, boom, his 1000 became $2,000, and they were ready to drill a well. Through a series of circumstances, he got invited to come to Africa to the place where his money had been used to dig and drill a well. Ryan and his family went over to see it. He says he was surprised that most of the people coming to get the fresh water were children about his age, elementary school-age children coming to get some fresh, clean drinking water. But while he was there, he also learned that they're digging most of these wells by hand, by physical labor. And if they had a drill, they could go deeper and drill more often and provide even more water. Ryan says, how much does that take? They said $25,000. What would most first graders do? Not what Ryan did. He said, I'll be back. And he goes home and starts raising the money. His story begins to spread. Civic clubs are inviting him to speak. Other schools want him to come talk to their students. He keeps working and working to earn that money. In one interview, somebody asked him, Ryan, why are you doing all this? And he said, well, because God put us here on earth, but didn't make us perfect on purpose, so we'd have to work together to make the world a better place. I first read Ryan's story over 20 years ago, in the early 2000s, late 1990s is when Ryan was a first grader. He's an adult now, and guess what he's doing with his life He's running Ryan's Well Foundation that drills wells across the continent of Africa so that people might have fresh and clean access to water. Pretty good compass. Pretty great compass for a first grader, a second grader, but a compass that would work for all of us. Love of God, love of neighbor. It leads us to the way of life. It shows us the truth it helps us experience what God intends for all of us to experience. St. Augustine was one of the great early writers in the Christian faith, called one of the church fathers. I put one of his quotes in your outline. He wrote at one point, Love God and do what you will. Love God and do what you will. Now, he's not saying that all choices are equal and your choices don't matter. He's saying if you start with love of God and love of neighbor, you're going to make good choices. And so if you're loving God, then you can do what you feel God's leading you to do. Love God and do what you will. The compass is invaluable. The compass is keeps us on track, keeps us on the right path, keeps us close to God. 
Jim Rohn is now deceased. He was a businessman and traveled around, did quite a lot of speaking. He liked to tell his own story. He says that he was 25 years old, married, had several children, and deep, deep in debt. And one day he met an older and wiser businessman who was asking him about his life. And he says, Mr. Rohn, tell me your plan. And he said, I'm going to work hard and make good money. And he says, well, how's that going? He said, well, I started working at 19. I've been working the plan for six years. I'm now 25. I have a beautiful family, but I'm deep in debt. And the older man said, I think that's long enough for your plan. If you're not inspired to live a Christian life, if you're not feeling God's Spirit alive in your life, leading you, freeing you from sin and making you alive in Christ, I'm suggesting to you, it's time to get a new plan. Check your compass, look at a map. If necessary, get a new plan. And remember Paul's proclamation to us. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen.